Well, this morning we pick up in the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew chapter 25. It's been a few weeks. At the end of Matthew chapter 23, our Lord spoke some very sobering words. Uh, He spoke them to the Jewish people. Their Messiah, keep in mind, their Messiah declared to them, your house is being left to you desolate. His disciples hear this and they, they process this. And they're sitting atop the Mount of Olives. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 then, the disciples ask Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and end of the age? And what we then have is this sermon. It's called a discourse delivered on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. It's the answer Jesus gives to those two questions. It is an answer that is spectacular, but also unnerving. He describes events yet to come. He details a time of great tribulation and his second coming. And he delivers this in vivid illustration. Learn from the sprouting fig tree. Consider that sudden thief. Remember God's worldwide flood. And this morning, he then gives two parables. And what he does is he gives us these parables so that you and I can live in light of the end. Our Lord is taking what he's explained and now applying it to our lives. As I mentioned, we're in Matthew 25. We pick up there this morning. We're given two parables to live in light of the end. Jesus, as I mentioned, is telling stories here to teach a point. Some call a parable an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The first parable is the parable of ten virgins. This is a parable about preparation. The second is the parable of the talents. That's a parable about faithfulness. I want to begin with the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. We'll read the parable of the ten virgins. We'll read it in its entirety. And the theme here, the point is, be prepared. Be prepared. Verse 1. That the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, And the door was shut. 
Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. I think it's helpful to gain some background to what's going on here. It's important to note that at this time, wedding customs were very different than they are in our day today. The bridegroom, it's probably easier just to call him the groom, the groom would travel with his friends to go to the home of the bride. And he would then retrieve his bride, reclaim his bride, and the whole procession would then parade over to a home. This could be the groom's home. They would begin this great wedding feast. So if we had to identify the events of our parable this morning, they probably fell somewhere along that march from from the bride's home to the feast. For whatever reason, there's not a bride mentioned, but that's not the point of the parable. And if some of this imagery, by the way, sounds familiar to you, the New Testament loves to latch on to this picture. John the Baptist called Jesus the bridegroom. Jesus himself calls himself the bridegroom, the church being his bride. Jesus will speak of a marriage supper of the Lamb. That'll happen later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. That's an event yet to come when we will celebrate with Christ. To the parable, the story revolves around ten virgins. This word virgin is used simply to depict ten unmarried women. In verse 2, we learn that five were foolish, but five were prudent. Some of your Bibles read wise. Wise is probably a better word than prudent. But notice what they had in common. Both of these groups, the wise and the prudent, they both possessed a lamp. Now, interpretations are split on this lamp. Some believe it to be something more of the the handheld version where there's oil inside with a wick coming out. You could light that lamp and see your way around. Others understand this to be a torch. Uh, Think Olympic torch. It's that type of a light or that type of a light. Both of these accounts also, or both of these groups, go out to meet the bridegroom. Both of these groups grow tired growing drowsy, going to sleep. And both groups wake up when the bridegroom arrives and they ready their lamps. But the difference is the point of the parable. In verse 3, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. The wise were prepared The foolish were unprepared. These are two different preparations yielding two different outcomes. All started off well. They lit their lamps. But then for that one group, a flicker. And then another flicker. And those few final sparks, as that whiff of the puff of smoke comes off, of the extinguishing wick. And the foolish say to the prudent, give us some of your lamp oil, for our lamps are going out. 
Do you remember those math problems from class? Jerry travels one mile. He has enough fuel for one mile. Jerry gives his friend John half his fuel. How far do Jerry and John travel? But the prudent answer, no. There will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. You see, the prudent or the wise in this account, they remain prepared. They do not sacrifice their preparation in the hopes of having others prepared, realizing that they cannot prepare others. Each must prepare himself. In this account, these five foolish virgins, they go to the store in verse 10. While they were away, while they're making their purchase, the bridegroom comes. They miss the very reason they came out. I bet they ran to the store. I imagine they sped over to the feast and they knocked on the door. Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus taught us something similar back in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why does Jesus teach this? What's the point of this parable? It's verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. He's referring to his second coming. The question the disciples asked way back in chapter 24, verse 3. This is a call for any who know they should be on alert, but they are not. For those who at this moment, for those who where everything appears fine, we might say they're carrying lamps in the daytime as they did in the parable. This would be a parable for those who believe there's plenty of time to prepare for Christ. And perhaps from the parable, those who are falling asleep without fuel. But to all of us, Jesus says, be on the alert. Jesus said this before, back in chapter 24, verse 42, be on the alert. He says, you do not know when I will return. He said this before, back in 24, verse 42, you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, it is true that Jesus directs this parable, this teaching. He gives it as an exhortation to his disciples. It's a discourse directed toward the Jews, the Jewish people. It speaks of his second coming. As a church, you and I are looking for the rapture. This is a different event. It's an imminent event. But the application is the same for us all. The New Testament time and again confirms this application. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter writes, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the, de- the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Bible calls you and I to a fixed state of alertness. Time and again, in reference to end times events, in reference to how we're living our lives in the present day. 
The challenge for us, the Church of the West, is that we've gorged ourselves on prosperity and on plenty and on possessions. And Jesus is knocking at the door and we're snoring on the couch. Jesus is teaching us here that if we're not prepared, we're not coming in. He doesn't owe us anything. He holds the guest list. He watches the door. He lets people in that door. That's his decision. I feel like in this parable, these foolish are, are, are fumbling around with their lamps and with their oil. And in our modern day, there's a tinkering around with matters of spiritual significance. That Jesus says, truly I say to you, I never knew you. Jesus says, get prepared. He's coming back. There's an urgency to this alertness. I recall a former seminary professor, he, he expressed his wish. He says, I hope to undergo little change as I transition from this life to the next. And what he meant by that is that I want to be walking so close to Christ that there's little to change when I make that, that, that change from, from earth to heaven. I think that's such a noble goal, a great way of saying it. Be prepared. Secondly, be faithful. Be faithful. This is the parable of the talents. It's verses 14 through 30. Be faithful. Last week, we concluded with the parable of the, the faithful and unfaithful slaves this parable now is going to elaborate that theme. It answers the question, what are we supposed to do while the master's gone? What are we supposed to do until Jesus returns? Verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the man who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, 
You have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throughout the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, we step back into the ancient Near East to understand the historical background to what's happening here. You understand that there's a wealthy master, a wealthy homeowner or an estate master. And in verse 14, he's getting ready to depart. He prepares for a trip. And he calls his slaves to himself, and he entrusts his possessions to them. Some of your Bible versions read he entrusts his property or his goods or his wealth. That selection of words is helpful. We'll get to that in a moment. You need to understand that these slaves are not poor, uneducated servants. They're not running around in tattered clothes, no. These are very intelligent people. They're shrewd. They're skilled in what they do. We might call them an estate manager. Three slaves are given three amounts of talents. And we ought to, at this point, really zoom in on this word, talents, scrutinize what this word means. Thirteen times this word appears in our parable, a significant word. Now, when you hear that word, your mind goes to a certain place, talents, special abilities or skills or gifts. Now, that's not the primary meaning that Jesus has in mind. There's going to be more at play. The talent of our parable is a measure of weight. One Bible dictionary estimates it's somewhere between 51 and 80 pounds. That means then that the value of the talent is dependent upon what that talent is. Let's just assume for a moment that this is silver, that the master is entrusting silver to his slaves. The master's given five talents of silver to the first slave. Using some modern-day calculations, one ounce of that silver is worth about $19. One pound is a little over $300. And if a talent, one talent, equals 80 pounds, one talent is $24,320. The first slave had five of these, meaning the master entrusted him with $122,000. So, what's the point? This is no small amount of change. This is a significant amount of trust given to the slave by the master. Back to the definition, back to that word talent. Does this then mean that Jesus is teaching you and I how we ought to use our money? Yes, to a point. But this isn't a parable only about investment. This is the second coming. That's the context here. What about natural ability or maybe a skill or a giftedness I possess? Is this parable about that? Well, yes, it could be that to a point. But again, the context here is the second coming. Jesus is teaching us to live in light of his return. And the master of our parable 
He expects his servants to take what he has given them. Now hear the spiritual application here. Christ expects what he's given you for you to take that and to go out and live in light of his return. To take what he's given you, be it finances, talents, opportunities, whatever, to go out and use that to go all in in light of his return. Those who do that yield his approval. Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who received the two talents, he gained two more. When did these slaves produce? Immediately. They did not loaf. They didn't linger. They didn't lag. They went out right away. They didn't take time to mull this over. They went out and they used what the master has given them. There's an urgency about serving the master. Notice as well their investment. They go all in. The one who had five used all of his five. The one who had two used all of his two. Each earned a return. Each return doubled. We ought to conclude as well that going all in, this involves risk. There's something risky about what these two men did. $122,000? Man, I want to be really careful with that. And I believe there's a way to be careful as we serve the Lord. But there's also a risk to it. Because as you and I serve Jesus, we will encounter risk. We're going to risk our schedules. We're going to risk our health. We're going to risk our sleep. We're going to risk our safety. We're going to risk our relationship. There's a risk involved in serving Jesus Christ. And in the flurry of all of this faithful service, five talents, two talents, what do we hear in the background? You know the sound. A metal spade digging into soil. The third slave with one talent, digging a hole out back. Now, after a long time, the master of our slaves came and settled accounts with them. And this master is going to come and evaluate each slave based on what he's given him. Not all are created equal. Not all are given the same talents. Not every Christian in this room possesses the same abilities, the same finances, the same giftedness, the same whatever. But every Christian, on the same, same, same argument, every Christian possesses some. Every Christian possesses something. Now, all of us are different. We should not go around comparing ourselves to one another. That's not the point. All of us are going to serve Jesus in very different ways using different amounts of ability and doing it to different degrees, to the point of the parable, different talents. And each of us will receive a judgment and evaluation from God based on what we did with what he gave us. This is going to be absolutely amazing for the faithful servant. Both the five-talent and two-talent slaves, they both report to Jesus, to the master, and they do it with heads held high. They hear the sweetest sound that you will ever hear. Well done, good and faithful slave. 
You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. God rewards faithfulness. This is the measuring stick by which you and I will be evaluated. Were we faithful with what he gave us? God rewards work. Did you notice what the reward is? Work. That may sound strange, but you need to know that heaven is not a Carnival Cruise Line commercial. Now, to be clear, heaven's going to be more beautiful and more fulfilling. Heaven's going to be more satisfying. It's going to be more pleasurable. Jesus calls it the joy of your master. But heaven's going to be a stewardship. Notice what the faithful slaves gain. More responsibility. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I want you to go with me in your minds back to Genesis chapter 2. Back to the garden. God forms Adam. And in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. That was paradise. Adam working the garden. We may forget that in the tedium of everyday life, but work began as a delight. It became a drudgery after the fall. We live in that. We understand that. But work was an absolute delight in the garden before sin. Now fast forward all the way over to the other end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. That chapter speaks about the future heaven. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Throughout eternity, you and I will, will work for the Lord. We will serve the Lord in, in some way, in some capacity. And in this parable, Jesus views this as a privilege. He gives it as a gift. He even considers it a joy. But in verse 24, this parable takes a turn. These remaining verses now concern the master and the unfaithful slave. And the slave speaks first. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Is that true? Is God hard or harsh? It's not. That's not the character of God. God is not without mercy. He's just the opposite, in fact. He's a God of great mercy. But God is also no pushover. God does have standards. God does make demands of his people. But because he's the God of mercy, he supplies what we need to meet those demands. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And God isn't the type of God who just says, welcome to my family, now get out there and get going. God gives us a grace to be able to do what he calls us to do. 
This servant has made an excuse, essentially. But notice he's also made an accusation. He describes his master as an opportunist. Now, not positively. There's uh, such things as a good opportunist. This might be a a wealthy um, citizen of a town who buys the local market so uh, the couple could retire. That might be an example of an opportunist who sees a way to make some money, but he's helping out other people. This is a, a negative opportunist. He speaks of the master in, in very negative terms. I learned a new word last week, toy flipper. This is someone who comes around at Christmas time and buys up the new toy so that he can then take that and raise the price because he has all the toys. That's a negative opportunist, taking advantage of other people. And what's happening in this parable is that this third slave is saying the master is that kind of an opportunist. You're making money off other people. And you're doing it in a way that isn't exactly kind. The master replies to him sarcastically, You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to put my money in the bank. What did the slave do wrong in this parable, this third slave? While the master was gone, what was his sin? Nothing. That's the crux of the parable. He didn't do anything wrong. He just did nothing. He refused to use what he's been given. And he robbed his master of his blessing. This is a picture of wasted opportunity. The Gospel of Matthew has given you and I no shortage of people not to emulate. We've seen Pharisees. We've seen Sadducees. Way back when, we met King Herod. There's people in towns called Chorazin and Bethsaida, even Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Here we have another example of what not to do in response to Jesus. Firstly, do nothing. Simply consume. You could hear the Word of God and read the Word of God. You could take some notes and then leave and do nothing. That would be an example of how not to respond to Jesus. This is a consumerism that plagues the American church where people will receive from God but not go out and do. If the slave were part of the modern-day church, he would fall under the banner of consumer. He comes to take and not to give. He receives from God but refuses to be faithful with what he's been given. A second mark of this man is that he is ready to blame God. That third slave, he made an accusation. Now again, understanding the master to be Jesus, this is a serious accusation. Most times our accusations don't sound this way. Oh Lord, you're always stealing from people. You need to be kinder. They don't deserve it. No, ours don't sound quite that way. God didn't give me a gift. Or I don't have that gift. I can't do evangelism because I don't have the gift of evangelism. God didn't give me that gift. Those excuses go on, those accusations, and so on. A third mark of this man is is that there's this distance between him and God, or him and the Master. 
A third way not to emulate this guy would be to distance God. In other words, if we don't know God, we can't faithfully serve him. The slave seems to have not known his master, or if he did, he just discarded that in in favor of lies. I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent. You and I should never be afraid of God, not in Jesus Christ. He's our master, it is true. He makes demands that is true, but we have no one else who loves us and pulls for us like our Heavenly Father. And I should add this too. If you're having problems using your talents, the best remedy for this is is a closer relationship with Christ. Because the more you know Him and the more you love Him, the more you'll want to serve Him. The two go hand in hand. It's almost stale and cold to try to serve and do things apart from that relationship with Jesus. This third slave has become a picture of of unfaithful service. It's a picture of what you and I ought not to imitate. You heard in this parable then, too, that the master has rendered a verdict. To everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does shall be taken away. In verse 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus shares here the result of, of a faithless religion. It's a fruitless Christianity. And it's a warning for you and I to live in light of the end. The parable of the talents is a warning to, to, to faithfulness. Use what God has given you each day. Consider Jesus returning this afternoon. It's that type of mentality. The parable of the ten virgins encourages you and I to be prepared. To, be, to remember that, that he's going to come back and to be ready when he does. You know, in summary, today may be the day for you to return to your backyard. To dig up that buried talent. Maybe you didn't realize that you had one. Maybe it's been a while since you used it. Maybe you forgot you had it. And if you're looking for motivation, if all of this is hard, think about Jesus Christ. Work on your relationship with Christ. Because what he calls us to do in this parable is nothing more than simply an overflow. It's simply an expression of our love for Jesus. This is what those who love Jesus do. And if I have in any way complicated this message, just take that away from, from today, that, that, that to serve Jesus is an expression of a love for him. Positively and maybe negatively, you and I have this work thing down. I know we do. <laughs> Americans are known for having an amazing work ethic. We celebrate it here in America. In fact, we celebrate it to the point of being one of the most overworked nations in the world. We lead the pack at hours worked. One study produced an average of 1,767 hours worked per year. That makes Americans diligent and productive and industrious. But here's the flip side of that. We run out of gas for the Lord. We give our best And then we give to Jesus. When it comes to the spiritual work, these opportunities in the church, maybe it's a need right in the the chair beside you. Maybe it's evangelism. We can be hard workers, 
but spiritually lazy. A believer, come and work for your Lord and invest your talent, whatever that might be this morning. You see, the Christian faith has no sideline. There's no bench. There's no bunk room. There's no bullpen. For you and I as believers, there's no siesta, no standstill, no sabbatical. If Christianity were a car, it would never run idle. If it were a tree, it would never cease to bear fruit. And if it were a park, it would never close. Each of us has a field. And all of our fields are different sizes. And we all have different tools to use in that field. But mark this, we all have a field to use for Jesus Christ. Will you go to work for Christ this morning? Because I tell you that verse 30 is real. The darkness is thick ink. The the weeping is inconsolable. And the gnashing is everlasting. But in the same breath I tell you that verse 23 is equally so. And for those who want to live in light of the end, for those who obey the call to Christ this day, to them Christ will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us many gifts and many opportunities to use them. We lament, we confess our missed opportunities, we confess our self-centeredness, our ignorance. Oh, the fullness of life where we, we lose sight, Lord, forgive us. Please give us grace to to serve out of a whole heart, out of a heart who loves Christ. Help us not to miss opportunities and to see new gifts and to use them, Lord. I pray you you would give that to us. That if there be any ways that we need to change and labor for you in the field, Lord, that we would do that. I pray for your blessing upon each person here today, Lord. There's many hard things happening in lives and many full schedules, and it's so hard. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would land this message in just the right way, that we wouldn't leave discouraged, maybe challenged, but encouraged to know that you give grace and you give gifts and you can help us use them. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.